0: And one of the things he has on this big show, which is kind of a mixture of music and uh, comedy and stand-up and so on, um, is uh, the unexpected star of the show. And the way it works is um, they come onto the stage, but they don't know they're coming onto the stage. So this week, it was a hairdresser, and she thought she was coming into one of the back rooms to do up a random person's hair and then uh, to go back home again but instead they cleverly made the corridor look as if it was going to one of the dressing rooms, but it came into a fake dressing room right in the middle of the stage, and bang, came down the wall, and this poor girl is there going, because this is what she meets. (laughs) Suddenly she's in the middle of the stage, and what she thought was reality, which was right in front of her, is uncovered, is opened up. And she sees she's the unexpected star of the show, and so no wonder she's got her head in her hands and is so amazed. And that's Michael McIntyre in a silly week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this idea of something being uncovered and reality being shown for what it really is—that's what apocalyptic writing is. And so when we come into Daniel uh, seven to twelve, which we're looking at over the next another four weeks of it to go, um, we get to see things as they are sort of from God's perspective but because they're hard to describe they're hard for us to get our heads around he uses imagery of animals and beasts and so on um, and so that's what we're doing as we're looking at this apocalyptic writing it gets us, helps us to sort of step back and zoom out and see the bigger picture we're going to be covering 400 years uh, this afternoon um, hopefully we won't like quite that long but um, at least I've got an excuse Um, We looked at this uh, last week. I gave it as a summary of Daniel 7, but it's kind of a summary of Daniel 7 to 12. It's kind of a summary of all apocalyptic writing in the Bible. If you ever look at the book of Revelation and you're just overcome by it, just zoom out, take the bigger picture, and this is a great summary of Revelation. I've read to the end, and we win. In the midst of all the turmoil that we're going through, all the stresses, the anxieties, the things that we're worried about... God just gets us to see how history is going to progress in this very imagery, rich way. We mustn't get too head up on the details. We just need to see we get to the end and we win. Those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ will be secure in him for all eternity in the new creation as his precious people, his, his bride, as it were, so close in relationship with him, it's like he's our husband and we're his bride. Well, here's a little discussion question to to get you going. Uh, Why don't you just take two minutes, either think on your own if you don't want to chat, or chat to your neighbour. What are you afraid of at the moment? What are you afraid of? What is it that you're worried that could happen? What's absorbing your life? What are your fears? What are the things you really hope won't happen right now? Just chat to your neighbour for one minute. As with these discussion slots, especially when we're a little bit shorter of time, It's only to get you thinking. The kind of follow-up question to that to have in your minds is, where is God in those fears? How does he comfort you? And how is this passage going to comfort you? Because this is not a comfortable chapter. Um, Let's just have a look at verse 27 again, but the whole thing this time. On your sheets right at the bottom there. Before, What I'm going to do is I'm going to read it through and explain it as we go along. Um, And the colour coding will make sense in a minute. But this last verse, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Not a comfortable experience for Daniel. And in some ways... Therefore, I hope it won't be a comfortable experience for us. As we get to see this, it may make us worry even more. But Perhaps make us worry about the right things rather than the wrong things. To see things from God's perspective and what should concern us in that. Maybe it will shake up our hopes and point us to better hopes and better dreams and better expectations. Because forewarned is forearmed. Forewarned is forearmed, isn't it? Uh, here's a, da- a summary of Daniel 8. It's there at the top of your sermon notes. Sorry, there's quite a lot here. I hope you don't find it too much like a kind of lecture. Um, uh, let's, it's, it's a hard one to kind of uh, preach on. But let me give you the summary here. Daniel is told 400 years of his future, which is our past... So that we are ready to be faithful as we face our future. So Daniel lived in uh, the kind of uh, 600 years before Jesus pitched up. Um, This would be about 550 years before Jesus uh, was born. And he's given a picture now of 400 years. So up to about 100, 150 years before Jesus was born. So that was his future. It's our past. saying, well, why do we need to know? It? It's useful for him to know the future, maybe. Why is it useful? Not. Uh, why do we need to know it? Well, so that we are ready to be faithful, as we face our future. In some ways, if, if that's the only thing you hold on to, uh, that's okay. Um, but as we dig deeper, uh, hopefully it'll help you. In a chapter in Revelation, at the end of the Bible, there's a series of sort of beasts or their descriptions have pulled together from Daniel it's very useful when reading Revelation to understand Old Testament apocalyptic writing and uh, in chapter 13 some of the beasts in Daniel are all sort of clubbed together and then at the end of that section the angel speaking to John says this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people so he's, it's kind of You'll see how awful things are in the sort of bigger picture. But this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. That's kind of there in the summary. We're told Daniel's future, which is our past, so that we're ready to be faithful, to endure as we face our future. Well, this passage, uh, if you have a look at it in its sort of big picture form, if you have a look at it on your sheets, you'll see it kind of fits into two halves. There's the vision. Up to here, and then there's a little break, and then from verse 15, there's the interpretation from the angel Gabriel from verses fifteen to the end. Just want to read verse fifteen before we get going. So Daniel's just seen this vision, which we're about to look at, don't worry. And verse 15 it says, While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And so he does. So, this angel Gabriel, significant figure who announces the birth of Jesus later on, is going to give Daniel the interpretation. And so, what we're going to do, the reason there's this color coding, is because they match up. So, first bit of orange matches with second bit of orange, first bit of purple matches with second bit of purple. So we can see, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the vision and we'll get the explanation as we go through. And because it's a long passage, hopefully that'll help us to work through it a tiny bit quicker than if we just read it all in one go. Okay. But we're going to start with the first two verses. And with our first point on the sheets, new superpowers will come and go. New superpowers will come and go. And let's have a look at verses 1 and 2. Okay, I'm going to read that now. Verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision. Belshazzar was the successor to Nebuchadnezzar, who started off really, really bad, sort of skinned Daniel's family alive and dragged him into exile, and was threatening to kill him for any devotion to anyone other than uh, Nebuchadnezzar as his god, and Daniel resisted, and yet God protected him and used him, and Nebuchadnezzar was converted. And then Belshazzar turns up, who's King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, but he succeeds him to the throne, and things get worse again. And in that, those first three years, last time we were looking at the first year of Belshazzar, where perhaps Daniel was hopeful, now he's perhaps a little bit less hopeful after three years of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel has this vision. Keep reading, after the one that had already appeared to me, so he's referring to last week's. In my vision, verse 2, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, in the vision I was beside the Ulai Canal. Okay, here's a map. I don't know if you can see it at the back, don't worry if you can't. Sort of bigger picture. This is the Babylonian Empire in pink, and the Median Empire in blue. And the Babylonian Empire at the moment is much the stronger, and the Median Empire is widespread, but it's the weaker of the two. And uh, Daniel is taken, although he's in Babylon, he's taken to this point here, which is the city of Su- near the city of Susa in the province of Elam. So he's on the border of Media and Persia, and this is where he's going to see a vision. What does he see? Verse three, in orange. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. So this is what he sees. A ram with two horns, but one's longer than the other. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and no one could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. What do we do with that? Well, in much of apocalyptic writing, we don't get told. And actually, it's not that helpful to speculate. It's OK to speculate, but it's not that helpful. Where well, we need to know we're told. If you look for the next bit of orange, in the next section, verse 20, we are told. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. So Media was there before, the smaller horn and then this what was smaller grows into a bigger horn and that's Persia so you've got the Median Empire there and then you get this ram charging across from Persia which is, Ooh, is that right? yeah it's down here so Persia's this little insignificant it's kind of uh, 20,000 square miles not very big media's massive And yet, out of Persia, a small horn goes into a longer horn and charges across, and this happens. I don't know if you can see that map. I've tried to line them up. (laughs) So they both are a bit smaller than this, and that pink now is the whole of the Persian Empire. So the Medo-Persian Empire combines and boom! Charges across. And um, although media was... uh, uh, a big neighbour of Babylon and Persia, was very small. As this person from Persia, who we now know is Cyrus, gains power, he takes over the Median Empire and then he powers across the Babylonian Empire. And in 550 BC, he... Um, uh, sorry, in 539 BC, not that you really need to know the uh, numbers he uh, is the guy who defeats Belshazzar. We actually met him in Daniel chapter 5. And he's also known as Darius the Mede, so he has a Medan and a Persian name, this is a combined empire, Um, and uh, he's also Cyrus the Persian. So that's the post-conquest. But even this empire, immediately as we see this great empire happens, Dan is thinking, oh my word, so it does, wow, Babylon's going to be taken over by uh, the Persian empire. Even this empire doesn't last. We're into verse 5 now, into the purple section. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a ghost, a ghost? A goat, with a prominent horn between its eyes, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal, and it charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great hmm what's that about well interpretation verse 21 also in purple the shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king so this is what happens the goat charges at the ram and we're told that that is Greece smashing down Persia And in history, that's exactly what happened. The big horn is Alexander the Great, uh, my namesake. Sadly, I haven't quite lived up to his abilities, because in ten years, he conquered the whole of the Persian Empire and more. So the map suddenly went from this, as he charges across from Greece, he's up there in Greece as a goat, charging at the ram, and boom, he takes the whole thing out. Within ten years, he conquers pretty much the whole of the known world. He's the reason that the whole of this area spoke Greek by the time of Jesus. The Greeks were sophisticated but small culture, and then they zoom across the whole of the known world, and the international language becomes Greek, a bit like the international language today is English because of America. But, verse 8, the goat became very great, but at the height of its power, now in green, the large horn was broken off. And its place, in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. What's that about? Interpretation. Next green bit. Verse 22. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that would emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. So, the big horn at the front gets broken off, and then four horns emerge. And that's exactly what happens in Uh, 323 years before Jesus, 323 BC, Alexander died suddenly, and his two sons were murdered. So suddenly his dynasty was cut off, and instead four great generals, the four great generals who were ruling this Greek empire for him, divided the Greek (laughs) empire between them. And so this happens. The four horns come up, and you've got different parts of the empire, with the biggest one being the green bit in the middle. And am um, not need to know who they are, but historically that's exactly what happened. And then from one of those subgroups, the Seleucid kingdom, it's called, there arose one leader in particular. So this picture is rather helpful. You've got the four horns, but then out of one of them comes a smaller horn, a king. And now we're on to point two. And this is where we focus in on this smaller horn. Not that significant in global history, but very significant for God's people at the time. Point two on your sheets A cruel dictator will devastate God's people. Well, let's read from verse nine. See if you can grasp some of this imagery as we go through. Out of one of them, out of one of those four horns, came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. That beautiful land is uh, another way of saying uh, Israel, Jerusalem, God's people living in the land. It grew until it reached the host of heavens. And it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. We get a bit of the explanation, it doesn't help us that much, but we get something, verse 23, in the latter part of their reign, so in the latter part of the reign of those four, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue will arise. Verse 24, he will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He's going to devastate God's own people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Well, we start to see perhaps why Daniel was so stressed and so poor. Things were getting better. And then they get worse. And then God's people seem to get caught up in the chaos. So they're back in the land, that's great. Oh no, but then this guy comes in and destroys it all. This guy was this person. Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes means um, God appears. He was so arrogant that he used the title of God, which is, explains some of the language of him setting himself up against uh, the Prince of Princes or the Commander of the Army of the Lords. Now, he's not very significant in global history. He didn't last that long. He's not that significant in biblical history. He's not recorded in the Bible itself. He's recorded in um, the Apocrypha, some other books that you can read, history books between the time that we're looking at now on the birth of Jesus. But it was a horrific experience for God's people and Daniel is told about it because he needs to know that although things might get better at the same time they'll get worse. Under Antiochus Epiphanes over 100,000 men, women and children were murdered. The sanctuary of the temple was destroyed and in it he put a statue of Zeus, pagan god, and he sacrificed pigs to that statue. The utter desecration of the temple, it was awful, it was devastating, it was painful for God's people to see. It was the worst experience for them. He banned God's words, he burned any Torah he could find, and if anyone was bound with a copy of the Old Testament, as we now call it, then they were killed. Well, how is this useful to us? Our third point. In the last ten minutes, we're going to look at this. This is written down so that we persevere, knowing that, and then we'll see a whole series of bullet points. This is written down so that we persevere. You see, what Daniel gets here, and what distresses him so much, is perhaps this bit. Chaos and persecution are normal that in the midst of God showing him the bigger picture of history it's going to be very very painful although in the end we win in the meantime this is a world in which people have turned away from God and have become dehumanized and a lot of the language of these animals these beasts is because people aren't human as they should be made for a relationship with God Instead, they become like that first beast that dragged people away from God. The devil in the garden who tempted Adam and Eve to come away from God. It's that dehumanizing effect of sin, which is pushing God out of the picture and saying, I'm going to rule my way. And that guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, was perhaps a real, sort of, one of the worst examples of that. So dehumanized that he set himself up as, God appears. God appears. May even have been that he put a statue of himself to be worshipped in the temple. We're not entirely sure, but that certainly would have fitted with his attitude. And in a world where God allows people to live on and set themselves up against him, in a world where God wants to reach out and rescue him, until, uh, rescue people, until God does, then those who trust in the Lord Jesus will suffer as he did. The Lord Jesus, the most the picture of utter beauty, the perfect life, the picture of fullness of life, of, of real joy that goes through the pain. And yet he suffered more than anyone. And so when the Apostle Paul writes to his uh, friend Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When we trust in Christ, our relationship with God is restored. We have meaning and purpose to live for and delight. But suddenly, life also gets harder. As God teaches and trains us, and also as others who don't want to know God perhaps turn away from us. And one of the really abnormal things about the UK today is that there's not that much persecution. You look at Christians across the world, and you realise that persecution is normal. The majority of Christians in this world today are suffering, and some of them, horrifically. And today's Antiochus Epiphanes is perhaps Islamic State or something like that, or um, North Korea. But be reassured, God is still in control. We can persevere knowing that chaos and persecution are normal, We're going to face the troubles of all kinds, sometimes worse, like Antiochus Epiphanes, sometimes better, as we'll see, like Cyrus. But in all this, God is in control. And God said it would happen. He said it would happen 400 years ahead of time for Daniel. It's very reliable history. In fact, this chapter in particular, because the interpretation is given for us, the the, um, commentators can't disagree with one another. And so they have to look and they go, "Okay, well, that actually happened. So much so that There are some who've said, even though there's no other evidence to believe it, there are some who've said, well, Daniel must have been written after Antiochus Epiphanes. Because there's no way he could have known that um, Persia and Greece would rise and then this detail would happen. And so it must have been written later. But there's no evidence, other than the fact that it's a prediction. People say, well, miracles don't happen, so it must have been written later. There's much better evidence that this was written 400 years ahead of time. But even then, it's much more useful for us, actually, than it is for Daniel. Because it's not like Daniel got to experience this. And it's not even like if you were reading that and you were kind of looking around at events as if you'd be exactly able to predict. The dates aren't given. This is a period of 400 years. Who knows when the next goat or ram or whatever it is or horn is going to rise. It doesn't really help in advance. It helps us looking back because we see that our God knows exactly what's going to happen to the finest detail. And so as we wonder what's going on, you know, what goats or rams, metaphorically, are going on in our life, well, we don't know But God's in control. And he does know. And so when these kind of things happen to us, well, we're not caught off guard. Forewarned is forearmed. God is still on his throne. And God let this stuff happen. Sometimes we think we want evil to be wiped out in our world. But at what point should God stop? Because there's a streak of evil running down my heart. And should God wipe that out as well? God in his kindness allows evil to continue. And he sends a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world. To rescue us from ourselves. Because if God wiped out evil in this world, that would include me. Because if we're honest, which of us could say that a perfect heaven would remain perfect with us in it? At what points of imperfection are we comfortable with in a perfect world? Would I make heaven a better or a worse place? Well, fundamentally I'm pretty selfish and the people I love the most are the people I hurt the most and so the people closest to me get the worst of me. I don't need God to just wipe out evil. That would include me. I need God to send a savior, a rescuer. And he has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, God is in control. So much so that you get verse 12. I don't know if you were struck by that as I read it. Because I dwelt on this, I just was really amazed. Because the rebellion of the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it, it prospered in everything it did. It prospered. We think of prosperity as being the thing that should be given to God's people who deserve it. You know, they're really goody-two-shoes. They should get prosperity. And here, the the most wicked man on earth is given prosperity. He's allowed to prosper. He's allowed to flourish. God lets it happen. No wonder Daniel was distressed. But we need to see next that God's perspective is so much bigger than us. This is four hundred years, and last week we were looking at a thousand plus years. I think this has really helped me to, in the midst of some of the turmoil and the pain that's going on in my life, which is nothing like this. Sometimes it feels like it. You know, it's not so much the reality of what's happening; it's often the pain in our hearts. And so people can be going through what looks like a very easy life and be very wealthy and yet broken inside. So we all know what that feels like. But sometimes, in the midst of that, and and as I look at the church and I think, "Oh, as a pastor, you know, I'm going to be responsible for growing this church," and the world revolves around Streatham, you know, and we're going to reach the nations, and suddenly God makes me zoom out. See, He can describe 400 years in one page. He can describe a thousand plus years in one chapter, like last week. The world doesn't revolve around me. The world revolves around me and so I don't need to worry desperately about whether I may not succeed, if the Lord wants this work to prosper and to bring more people in, then he will do it. But he's the Lord. He's the King. He's the one seated on the throne. He has given all authority to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man who came to die and rise again for us, who's seated on the throne and who sends us out. But... The world doesn't revolve around us in Streatham in the 21st century. The Lord will fulfill his purposes. His perspective is so much bigger than ours, and yet we also get amazingly reassuring verses, like the Lord Jesus Christ saying, that you know that even every hair on your head is numbered. I was very struck uh, hearing a talk recently where someone just pointed out the fact that there are more Stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet earth I don't know how many trillions and billions and so on you look at the Sahara Desert picture of that just imagine that in your mind's eye there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth God has the big picture and yet there are more atoms in one grain of sand than there are stars in the universe our God is amazing he has the big picture covered, but he knows about the tiny details of every hair on your head, and especially for some of the men here, each of those hairs really matters. <laughs> and so we can trust him, we, we can relax, we can have that contented dissatisfaction that I've alluded to in the last few weeks that Jesus calls us to. We can be content in knowing that. Things aren't quite right yet, but we're not in control, he is. Because, D, it will end and there will be justice. Just have a look at verses 13 and 14 on the sheets. In red. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, this is like the angels talking to each other in heaven, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings and then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. But it could be that that 2,300 evenings and mornings is six years and four months. Because that's about the time that Antiochus Epiphanes had his way. From the murder of the high priest to the reconsecration of the temple after he was defeated. And actually, in BC 164, the great King Maccabees came through and defeated <coughs> Antiochus Epiphanes, and the temple sanctuary was reconsecrated. And it's still celebrated today with the Jews. You can perhaps talk to a Jewish friend tomorrow. I learned about the feast of Hanukkah. Anyone heard of Hanukkah? Most Jewish people celebrate that. And that is the celebration of the re consecration of the temple, of the defeat of Maccabees. And the question was how long? Well, slightly weird timing, 2,300 evenings and mornings, a bit cryptic. Yeah, deliberately cryptic. But the point is, it's a finite amount of time 2,300 sleeps until it's done, it's sorted. There'll be other things afterwards. But it will end. What you're going through right now will end. And justice will be done. And that's in the Lord's hands and not yours. There will be justice to all. No matter how ineffective the UN is at bringing to justice Islamic State or King Yom-Ill or whoever it is. Or how ineffective the Hague is in bringing people to trial. There will be justice. God's in control of that. And finally, we don't need to know exactly why it's happening. Daniel wasn't told here, we're not told here, why these individuals were going through the suffering, why that hundred thousand people then. Many are just caught in the crossfire as these goats and rams clash against each other. We do know that God is not punishing us. Whatever you're going through, it's so easy to to end up thinking, oh, the world revolves around me in Streatham in 21st century London, and so the fact that this is happening to me right now must be because God is punishing me. No, no, no. God oversees the big picture. And sometimes we're caught in the crossfire. But in his fatherly care, he uses that to develop and shape us. But yes, sometimes our individual sin has consequences and we need to think about that. But not all the time. It's not clear that God was punishing these people in particular. The wicked prospered in this one. But it's not random. God's got it covered. He knows what's happening. And you're going through this because you're caught up in a cosmic battle that is way bigger than you. And that should reassure you. And so finally, stick with God's people. As we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become part of a family. And all those sacrifices that are talked about here pointed forward to the one final sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And as we come to him, we become part of God's holy people. And in the New Testament, there's a time when people are going through persecution. It gets worse and worse as history goes on in the first century. And the writer to the Hebrews says this, and I put it at the bottom of your sheets. It's in the context of a church doing worship and community and mission together, coming together under the Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer to the Hebrews says this from verse 32, right there at the bottom of your sheets in Hebrew. Sorry, not in Hebrew, it's in English. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution, at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come. And will not delay. Here are people who so know that God has got it covered. That, verse 34, they could joyfully accept the confiscation of their property imagine if your house was taken off and given to the government because you're a Christian well that's what happened to these people and yet they stuck with each other and they served each other because they knew that justice would be done, they knew that the Lord Jesus had it covered and they're an encouragement to us to persevere whatever we face history could change like that Babylon went to Persian hands in one night and it's just, if we've got short memories that we don't realise that empires come and good. superpowers change. It's only a hundred years ago that people with my accent were ruling the world. And now people with my accent get mocked for being posh. <laughs> Probably rightly so. <laughs> but life can change, just like that. We shouldn't worry about it, we should just trust in the gods. Who is in control? I was so encouraged just reading that psalm on the back of the sheets. See that last line? The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. God brings in the nations, but whether they're trusting in him or not, for the kings of the earth belong to God, he is greatly exalted. we started a bit late so we're finishing a little bit late let me close by praying and then I'm going to encourage you just to chat about that around your tables and how that speaks into your situation if you guys are happy we won't let's pray our father thank you so much for this chapter which seems so weird and perhaps irrelevant to us on first reading but yet it's so relevant to us to see that you're in control of history. You're in control of the history of the 21st century in Stretton right now, and the whole big picture of everything that's happening. Thank you that you are gathering in people to yourself, that there are tens of millions of people coming to Christ in China at the moment, under immense persecution. But there are people in Mali who, because they're so pulled at what Islamic State are doing, are turning away from Islam and asking to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet suffering in the midst of it. Father, please would we pray for our brothers and sisters across the world. Please would you give us this perspective. So that it would shape how we think about our everyday experience. And the turmoil that we're going through right now. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.